Well, Sean Ashton is a well-known name amongst South African investors from his time at Joburg-based Anchor Capital. And that's when we last interacted. Couldn't believe it. I had a look on the archives of Biz News today and found out that the last discussion we had was back in 2014. Anyway, Sean is now London-based with Omba, a company that we know very well here at Biz News through March Mark Perchtold, his colleague. We found out where he's been in the interim and exactly what he's doing at Omba. If you remember Omba's into exchange-traded funds, Mark is a, well, a stock picker. So where do the two collide? We'll find out in a moment. Good to see you, Mark. So, okay, let's uh, fill in the gap for all your, your hordes of fans here in South Africa. Thanks for uh, for the intro, Alec. It's, uh, it is Sean. Um, just a, a small correction. I am actually South African-based. I'm working with the Omba team, but uh, I, I physically sit in SA um, at this stage. Okay, so so I was I was kind of half right. I said the London-based Omba. But, so you work with a bunch of South Africans who have got a company in the UK, but you're still home. You're still in South Africa. Okay. Somerset West. So, yeah, that's largely a... A personal family setup, but it works for us for now, and uh, very much connected to the team in London. And the the intersection there between Omba being exchange traded funds and you being a, a stock picker of some repute, how did those two, or how do those two intersect? I think the, the the most important thing to first establish is these are people businesses uh, first and foremost. Um, if I'm looking for a particular fit or not just me but the the Omba team as well it's always about people due diligence is there a cultural fit can you work together i think we very quickly established early on that the you know with the number of conversations that we had that there was absolutely a cultural fit i think there's a complementary skill set um the Omba team would be a lot more macro focused not to say that i don't think deeply about macro i do um but also remember that there's a, a fairly new product which uh, which Omba's launched in the couple in the last couple of years. They obviously run a handful of uh, ETF focused uh, mandates, both uh, segregated and, and unitized mandates, depending on which client set you're talking about. One of which is a thematic fund. Um, now that thematic fund has got the mandate to invest up to forty percent in direct stocks. Uh, so I'm going to be quite deeply involved in helping them do stock selection research. For uh, for those specific picks. Ah, okay. It makes a lot of sense now. So, in the thematic fund, which you need to just unpack a little more for us, uh, that is not going to be one hundred percent invested in exchange traded funds, which is what Omba has done uh, with the other parts of its product. So, h- how does this work? The thematic fund. Absolutely. So, it's still very much a top-down uh, starting point to identify global themes. It might be clean energy. It might be. Uh, infrastructure, they might want to take a tilt on saying um, S&P 500 has sharply outperformed mid to small cap, so we might take a, a, a mid to small cap tilt and put a trade on in an ETF product there. Um, but uh, within that, within those global themes that are identified, those top-down themes, there might be certain ETFs that cannot fully express a particular view that you want by, by virtue of saying that there might be too much of a concentration in the in the stocks that you don't want to own in a particular ETF, um, and then there's another one that you do want to own. So 
that mandates the very specifically that mandate uh, allows a 40% allocation to, to direct stocks to get a, a pure take on a particular theme. I'll give an example. So e-commerce is one of the themes in the, in the, in the thematic fund uh, and, and Amazon is quite a sizable weighting within that portfolio. The, the single stock weighting is capped at 3%. Um, so just to be clear, they do try to limit idiosyncratic stock stock level risk in across all of their mandates. So you, you're unlikely to see a scenario where uh, one very big bet uh, that gets placed in the portfolio takes you out of the needs. It's a far more diversified approach, um, but but within that specific mandate, there is the the ability to take more more direct picks. So what other themes can you invest in? In other words, what thematic funds does Omba run? So there's just the one specific mandate, but but within that particular thematic fund mandate, there's uh, there's a number of themes that have been identified by the broader team: uh, clean energy, infrastructure, e-commerce would be examples. Semiconductors with a secular, uh, very strong secular growth outlook over the next number of years for semis. That's that's a particular theme that's been identified, um, and they would be taking exposure via both ETFs and single stocks there. Um, but to, just to understand the 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 broader yeah the, the broader macro themes that are identified would have applicability to not just the thematic fund. It would also be the equity fund, the moderate fund, which also has uh, uh, which has a fixed income element to it as well. All right, I think I'm getting this now, but maybe you can just unpack it once more. If, for instance, the Omba team decide that construction in the U.S. Yep. is going to boom. Could that new theme be put into the thematic fund? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so you identify the themes around the world which appear to be offering the best value, and then in those individual themes, up to 40% can be in single stocks, and that's where Sean Ashton comes in. Yeah, 40% of the overall funds in AB can be single stocks, capped at 40 I presume, given that Omba's got a global uh, remit, that you're not spending too much time looking at the JSC, given its tiny percentage of the overall investable universe. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, I don't spend. I mean, me personally, I spend no time looking at the JSC. It's uh, it's been a global focus for me for for at least five years now. So the magnificent seven. Let's just uh, unpack them quickly. On Wall Street, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Nvidia, Tesla, and Meta. We've got in our portfolio, in the business portfolio, we've got Microsoft, Amazon, and NVIDIA. So those three have done us very well. Um, The other four plus those three, do you spend time looking at those given that Wall Street just seems to be in love with those and out of love with everything else? Yeah, these are names that I spend a lot of time on. That's true. Um, I think it's worth contextualizing because this is obviously a very topical Point of discussion right now. And I actually did the numbers this morning. If you look at the year-to-date return on the S&P, you're just under 13% for the overall index, and there's pretty much 10 stocks that have given you all of that return. Now, those tech 10 stocks account for 30% of the market cap, but all the return this year. Uh, a lot of the names that you mentioned are in there, and a, a few others. But I think it's worthwhile just talking about the. If you if you look at those specific companies, the average 2022 return across that group of stocks, the top 10 contributors to performance this year were down 34%, okay? Just the simple average. So I think you you need to contextualize this year's gains for for that grouping of stocks by saying, uh, in most cases, you know, if you start at 100 and you go down 35%, 
you know, it takes you a lot more than 35% to get back to square. So, uh, you know, for, for pretty much all the stocks you've mentioned, you still haven't reached your high watermark from, let's call it December 2021. I think the only examples would be NVIDIA uh, that I can see in that in that top 10 grouping. And there's a few other non-tech names that uh, like Eli Lilly in the, in the pharma space that have come through as big contributors. But, uh, but yes, I, I think it's a recovery play from a very deep bear market, which wasn't proportionately shared by you know, companies outside of that grouping last year. Every investor or investment professional looks for the outperformer, the outlier. And if we have a look at that group of 10, as you say, the 10 that, that, uh, that have actually made the performance, outside of that, if the rest of the market's done pretty, pretty little, are there now themes that are starting to jump out at you as AI was a theme that if you jumped into earlier this year, you'd have done very well from. Yeah, so I mean, the I'd say for me personally, there's not an obvious small to mid-cap uh, theme by sector that jumps out at me right now. I think that certain uh, real estate stocks are starting to look quite interesting, but that's not something that's been implemented in, in the business as yet. It's more a discussion point um, right now. I think there's a you know, there, there are some real estate players outside of office that have been left behind uh, as rates have risen very dramatically. Um, and there could be a va- there could be a value play there. There's one name I could think of off the, off the top of my head that, that looks interesting right now. Um, but I think even within the within the, the mega caps that have shown you a lot of return this year, if you pick the eyes out of that, like for example, Meta is a, is a name in the thematic fund right now, which uh, I think is up 160 odd percent year to date. People are saying, "Well, that's surely too much." Um, bearing in mind it was down two thirds last year, so you still haven't reached your high watermark again. Um, and that's a business which, despite the rally this year, you've had yeah, it's trading at a five percent free cash flow yield on still depressed margins relative to their peaks, and still very high capex relative to peaks. So they're arguably under earning. Um, and the valuation looks fine. So, so that that's a holding that, despite the rally that we've had, I would say I'm still comfortable with it. Um, Amazon's probably another one, uh, which would have commonality in, in the thematic fund. So, so yeah, I think that the yes, the you know, there the is a case to be made that perhaps if we can start to have line of sight to where yields are going to settle, that you you might see cash allocated away from some of the mega caps to more small, small to mid cap names. You've touched on an important point there when you say yields, interest rates, in other words, where they're going to settle. Uh, I was listening to the FT, our partners at the FT this morning, discussing the Argentina uh, uh, election. And they say that, well, they explained that the leader in the Argentina president presidential race is an economist who's telling the country they need to get rid of the peso and close the central bank and dollarize everything. But the problem with that, people are saying, is that that would make Argentina completely exposed to American interest rates. But I guess the counter-argument is we're all exposed to American interest rates. What the Americans do affects the rest of us. But where are you seeing that? Because then, then just having said that, it, it's so important to the whole world. As, it's including a us for emerging markets. And unfortunately, the U.S. exports their monetary policy to the rest of the world. That's just a fact. So, and, and arguably, they're in a better position to cope with their own monetary policy than what a lot of other countries are because we're not the issuer of the dollar. At the end of the day, um, 
And there's a big debate around this, uh, and I, I wrote something recently on this. The interplay between the Fed and the Treasury is perhaps not as independent as, as one might like to think. Um, the Fed would like to create the impression that they are a totally independent agency and they're happy just, just to let the cost of capital uh, float to a, to a natural market-related level. I, I think that's a little bit naive. Um, I mean, you've, it's the elephant in the room, Alec. You've had rates settle from 1% to 5% now. The, the, the most recent move from four and a quarter to 5% has happened in a very short space of time. To me, it looks disorderly. Um, bond prices haven't crashed like this in, in many years. Um, and if you just think about the US fiscal position for a moment, like just to, I won't try and delve into too many detailed numbers, but it's worthwhile just for the listeners to understand. Uh, year to date, the the Treasury, you know, if you think about their budget situation, they generate revenue of $4 trillion year to date. They've spent $5.5 trillion. There's $33.5 trillion worth of debt. So you're adding to the debt pile by $1.5 to $2 trillion a year. But if you inside that $5.5 trillion of expenditure, there's $600-odd billion of interest payments. Okay, But now you might think, okay, $600 billion on $33 trillion, is only a two to two and a half percent coupon, okay, across the the debts that they've that they've really got outstanding. But guess what? Market rates are at five percent. So I guess what I'm saying is, if you were to reprice all of that debt today to market rates, and I don't have a good line of sight to where the average maturities are, you you would add an extra one trillion dollars to the annualized interest bill. That's twenty five percent of the of the of the budget, right? And another three to four percent on top of the existing budget deficit as a share of GDP. So you can quickly see that you're in a situation now where the, the, the fiscal situation is pretty scary. And and I, I don't think the Fed can just blindly allow rates to explode to market-related levels without the Fed, federal government running into some running into a bit of a debt trap at the end of the day. And and there is historical precedent for the Federal Reserve and the Treasury acting in concert. And we had this as recently as three years ago. You know, you had the COVID crisis in March of 2020. Um, $2.2 trillion stimulus package was announced by Treasury, much of which was paid directly to households. And guess who funded that? The Fed directly funded that. They, they took onto their balance sheet an additional close to $3 trillion worth of uh, worth of debt, yeah. Their their balance sheet expanded from four trillion uh, just immediately pre-COVID to seven trillion. So, for me, the argument that the Fed is entirely divorced from Treasury is is, is not the right argument. And I think, I think we we are approaching a level now where I wouldn't be surprised if the saddle in Treasury yields becomes more disorderly that you you might find the an argument that they they have to rethink their quantitative tightening program down the line. I wouldn't be surprised. It would be terrible for their credibility, um, especially given that they haven't yet they yet meet the met their arbitrarily determined two percent inflation target. But uh, inflation is a lot lower than what it's than what it was, and uh, it might eventually give them breathing room to abandon the idea of quantitative tightening. My view. It's lovely context that Sean, because we've got here in South Africa our own. Uh, midterm budget statement coming up on the 1st of November where we are paying a heck of a lot in interest as well. And we forget it's not just South Africa that's got this problem and the way you've unpacked it for the United States is is uh, a, a similar line. But it just appears as though the big stories in the world are the ones that affect all investment markets. And right now, geopolitics seems to be front and center, uh, not just 
Russia, Ukraine, but now Israel, Hamas. How much should this or would this affect your thinking about, uh, and I'm talking your meaning, the whole of Omba's thinking about these broad international trends? How important is geopolitics? I think it's worthwhile just acknowledging you know, the, the tragedy, the human tragedy of what's happened in the last couple of weeks. It's obviously terrible. I think the the, the immediately direct impact to markets is uh, is less important than I think the, the the indirect impact of what it means for policy. Okay, So if you've now got a, a US government that's going to be actively supporting uh, the, uh, the, the fighting of two wars, indirectly albeit, they're sending capital and funding to both Israel in addition to Ukraine. It just means more deficit spending. Defense is already 13% of the budget in the US. Um, it's hard to see why you know, the fiscal impulse of the US slows down whilst you've got uh, a handful of wars around the world. So, so I, ultimately, the impact, I think, is more indirect by virtue of fiscal policy, and, and that's naturally inflationary. Uh, so you've got, a, you've got a Federal Reserve that's, that's fighting against geopolitics and, and, in a way, their own government and their own government's policies around where they're spending money. Um, so, so I think w- what we need to see is, is for all of this to calm down uh, and for deficit spending to come in because uh, that'll put less pressure on the bond market. And by virtue of that, if you have less pressure on, on bond prices, uh, we can take more comfort that there's relative value in equities. Right now, the, the market is struggling to, to find an equilibrium point of pricing uh, equities because everything's priced off the long end of the yield. And next year, Donald Trump, as things stand today, will be the president of the United States again. Would that, he's way ahead in the polls. Uh, we published it actually on Business Premium this morning, our latest, the latest polls from Bloomberg, who've just done a, a, a research into it. So it, it seems almost unbelievable to those of us who, who have question marks over Trump. But in geopolitics again, a Trump presidency, I guess, is going to throw another cat amongst the pigeons. Potentially, yes. I, I, I'm personally not sure which would be a <laughs> which would be a better or worse candidate at this point. I think Trump was obviously an enormously divisive character whilst he was whilst he was president of the U.S. and the and the, the policy of kind of diplomacy via Twitter was exhausting. You know, it created a very deep deep amplitudes in the news cycle that was that was difficult to to manage through, certainly as a fund manager. Um, but I'd, I, I would like to think that perhaps he, he might be a little bit more inclined to uh, implement policy that that may see a little bit more peace. I don't know. If, like I'm not an expert on these on these on, on the subject matter, but it seems to me that that the Biden administration hasn't exactly um, you know, run diplomacy in a way that's kind of calmed down geopolitics as opposed to amplified it. I'm not sure that's that he's been better at that than what Trump has been. So I guess it really is, as far as a fund manager is concerned, it's not you, you, you're at rock bottom anyway. So it's not, it's not going to make much difference on that on that score. Uh, when you have a look into the future in this very very uncertain world that we live in, how do you find opportunities that you can be confident of that you can be committed to? Oh, that's a very open-ended question and a, a difficult one to answer. I think that often that happens through periods of dislocation, to be honest with you. So, and, and I think, I guess what's been frustrating is, uh, as a fund manager in the last few years is you've spent a lot of time with 
in a time period where prices haven't obviously been very cheap. You've had a few moments where you, you've had a major dislocation like in COVID. If I remember, think back to March 2020, certain share prices dropped to levels where it was blindingly obvious that this thing was value, unless the world genuinely was going to end. Um, but in, in most cases, you know, you, you, you did have prices that, that, that made that made a whole lot of sense. I don't think we quite there yet, and that's where it's a little bit frustrating right now, is broader indices are trading at, let's say, 17 or 18 times forward PE, if you look at the, the S&P 500, in the context of uh, rates at 5% and, and real rates at 2.5%, uh, that equity risk premium doesn't look especially attractive. So it's a case of, well, you know, nothing is very obvious right now, uh, is, is the message I would send to you. Um, yes, the, you can always pick the eyes out and find individual opportunities, but I think at an aggregate level, uh, it, yeah, there's not there's not a list of like 20 names where I would say, wow, the, these things were an absolute slam dunk right now. You've got to be trusting the professionals. Sean Ashton is with Omba. I'm Alec Hogg from biznews.com. 